There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I am your host, Timothy Michael McKernan, alongside producers Iggy and Gangster Pete. We are in HomeLoanExpert.com studios for an interview presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies with blues broadcaster John Kelly. And I think your takeaway from this interview will not only be uh, John's relationship with his father, legendary blues broadcaster, uh, Dan Kelly, his rise through the hockey broadcasting ranks, and, of course, his thoughts on uh, recent Blues history and uh, the team's prospects for the upcoming season. Uh, but also, I think one of the headlines will be um, Ken Wilson, which I know you probably are tuning this in if you hadn't seen me tweet about it or talk about it on the Ryan Kelly morning after uh, or the TMA fan page, you might be going like, what, Ken Wilson, where'd that come from? But uh, I think that is something that I think a lot of people have been curious about as to what happened. Uh, and and it wasn't something that I necessarily planned to get into, but we just got into a good conversation. And John explained, uh, you know, Ken's exit from St. Louis, I think is something that caught people off guard, including John and his family. If you recall, uh, he was on with, we believe it was Mike Claiborne and Bob Ramsey, uh, in the afternoon drive show on, on KFNS in 2004. And, uh, and just went off, uh, on essentially the Buck family and the Kelly family and it caught the Buck family and the Kelly family off guard. And so we, uh, spend some time on that. And so from that standpoint, uh, you you learn a lot about John and growing up with uh, Dan Kelly as his father, his start in broadcasting, and of course a lot of discussion on the St. Louis Blues, but also I think something that would be described as um, you know, newsworthy might be not might might be the improper adjective, but uh, something people have always been curious about, and getting the perspective of somebody who's actually there uh, is is certainly going to be uh, intriguing, I think, for many. Uh, St. Louis area sports fans because Ken Wilson's voice was synonymous with blues hockey for, for so many years. And the exit struck a lot of people on the outside as being so odd. And then especially the way he exited uh, turned people off. So you, you will hear uh, John Kelly's perspective on that coming up. Really enjoyed this interview. I think I can say that every week. I'm sure people listen to me say that and go, you say that every week. You can't possibly quote, really enjoy the interview every single week. It just so happens. I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, and then I think the main reason for that is because we're not having people on who I'm just not that interested in. So uh, hopefully the people that I'm interested in, you're interested in because uh, that's what we're going to continue to do. I can't bring people in where I know nothing about it or I just don't really care that much and then do an interview. So I've John's just a really good guy. Uh, I think anybody would tell you that. And um, and then also you tie in really almost the inception of the franchise. Uh, his dad took over uh, in the second year of the Blues franchise. But uh, also 
recent blues history and then so many years in between and stories. And then also, you know, keep in mind, he, he goes to Colorado and they, they win two cups there. So, uh, so much covered in the conversation, just another enjoyable conversation that I feel like could have happened at a, at a bar or over dinner, but it happened to take place in the homeownexpert.com studios. And so we are happy to bring it to you here on the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network, thehomeloanexpert.com. That's Ryan Kelly, and he has been our studio sponsor since we started this thing in October of 2017. And we ask that you support the sponsors of the program because without the sponsors, the podcast will go away. So it's all about the sponsors, and Ryan Kelly has been with us from the very beginning. And as he points out, home values all across the country are skyrocketing your home is worth a lot more than it was just last year, and that means you have options. If you have PMI, you probably don't need it anymore. Stop throwing money away. Get a hold of the home loan experts today to get rid of your PMI. With home value skyrocketing, there's never been a better time to do a cash-out refinance. You have equity just sitting there. Use it to pay off credit cards. Make home improvements. It's all there for you, and all you have to do, all you have to do, is go to thehomeloanexpert.com, click on the tab, whether you're going to be buying a home, whether you're going to refinance. It's all there for you at thehomeloanexpert.com. Ryan Kelly, our studio sponsor, and our guest presenting sponsor is Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. He has gotten on board recently. And this is this is somebody, whereas with Ryan Kelly, I know Ryan. I think at this point, you know Ryan, but it's a reminder that when the time comes to buy a home uh, or to refinance, Ryan Kelly is the guy. It's just that it's the default position. You're going to have to buy a home. You're going to refinance. Just know Ryan Kelly is the guy. It's all it's, it's that simple. With Mark, I think I'm presenting something that you might go, well, I don't need that because you're going to need a mortgage. You're going to want to refi. What I'm telling you about Mark Hanna and Evergreen Wealth Strategies is this is something you may think you don't need or won't need. And I'm telling you it would be a mistake to to not. Uh, and uh, you can check them out at Evergreen uh, wealth Strategies, Evergreen Wealth Strategies, evergreenstl.com. His name is Mark Hanna. He presents our guests every week here on the Tim McKernan Show. And I met Mark a few months ago, and he was very interested in sponsoring the podcast, but I just don't want to ever be in a position. And inevitably, I guess it's going to happen here and there uh, when, you, when you've done it for, I guess, almost two decades at this point. You don't want to ever have it happen intentionally, and you try to prevent it from happening. And that is you vouch for somebody who, as it turns out, uh, you don't want to be vouching for. And so I like to meet with people before I start uh, talking about them on any show or social media that I'm associated with. And so in the case of Mark, uh, he was talking about sponsoring the podcast. And I'm like, that's great. Um, and then I get to know him. And within 10 minutes, I'm like, man, uh, whether this guy were interested in sponsoring the podcast or not, this is somebody who I would easily recommend to people I know. And that's because I think a lot of people just don't tend to their money like they should in their 20s and 30s, my case, 40s. And you look back on it and you go, wow, what was I doing? Well, with Mark Hanna, you can take care of that because he's going to take care of it. And the thing that I, I really like about what he does is he helps people get organized and get a clear picture of what they have. I think it's kind of an addition by subtraction type of thing. And by that, I mean... You're subtracting the anxiety you may have that you know you need to get your finances properly taken care of, setting yourself up in the short term and the long term, but you don't know what step to take to properly do it. And so it just kind of lingers in your mind. Well, imagine not having that worry on your mind. 
Well, here's how you can do that. You call Mark at 314-889-0503, 314-889-0503, or go online at Evergreen STL. And that is one of the things that they do for you. They help get you organized. And this allows you to have, you know, a one-page financial picture. It's called an asset map, and it's easy to understand, and you can see what you need to address. And just right there, that addition by subtraction, the subtraction of that anxiety is going to make you feel better, and then you're going to make better decisions on what you need to do. And that's what Mark does. He understands the business. He helps everyday people every day. Mark Hanna, Evergreen Wealth Strategies, 314-889-0503 or online at evergreenstl.com. He presents John Kelly this week here on the Tim McKernan Show. Talked it over with John, talked about his career, talked about his relationship with his father, talked about Ken Wilson and how that whole situation played out. And of course, talked about what it would mean to this region for the Blues to win a Stanley Cup. So, courtesy of Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. It is our pleasure to present to you here on the Tim McKernan Show, Blues broadcaster John Kelly from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. I can't wait to talk to you because I don't know what your whole story is, and I always like to try to find out the whole story. So this is great. My pleasure. Yeah. I hope my story is interesting yeah, for you. People, people, when I say that, like Courtney Bryan from KMOV, the anchor, she goes, there's no way I can talk for 45 minutes about myself. And then next thing you know, we're an hour in. And she goes, oh, my God, I just talked about it. But I'm legitimately curious, especially when you are the son of a, a legendary broadcaster. So let's start there being the son of the late, great Dan Kelly and what that was like growing up. It was uh, It was awesome, you know. I was born in Ottawa, and I moved here at age eight. It was the second year of the Blues' existence. And uh, Jack Buck, of course, and Jay Randolph were the announcers in the first year. Probably not a lot of people know that. Um, My dad was hired in 68. So we moved here in December of 68. My dad had come a few months earlier. Uh Um, And, you know, I never really, at the time, I was a young guy, and it wasn't a big deal to me as an announcer. And... It was cool. Oh, we're coming to a new city and a new country. I'd never been to the United States, obviously, you know. And, uh, you know, probably the first time it hit me was maybe in sixth grade, um, a couple years after we had moved to St. Louis, and they had asked my dad to come speak to our class. And he talked about the blues and broadcasting and stuff like that. And, you know, he was swarmed by for autographs. And I'm thinking, like, my dad what's the big deal and you know, obviously he became a big name in st louis and not long after coming here he was named as the uh, play-by-play guy for cbs the game of the week um and it was just uh it was just a thrill to to be around him he was a great father and you know i'd go to the games more and more as i got older and hang out with them in the broadcast booth and go to the coach's office mm-hmm. after the game and you know, walking to the car, the fans were there. They'd ask him for autographs, and yeah, it was cool. Yeah. It was a great existence, you know. When you when you find out that you're moving, how old are you around then? I was eight. Eight years old. Okay. Yeah. Uh, are you like are you excited about it, or are you kind of like, oh man, this this sucks. We're moving from home, or you just knew this was kind of like the life. You know, I didn't I didn't know. I mean, I was so young, and um, I, I know my dad was up for a couple of jobs. He he was up for the Blues job and the Minnesota job, and Actually, Scotty Bowman recommended him for the Blues job. 
Um, he was he had known Scotty um, from Ottawa because Scotty had coached the junior team um, years ago, and my father was the broadcaster. So I, I don't know. It, it was I guess it was cool as a kid. Yeah. Hey, we're going to a new city and a new new country. New and country. I remember going to the airport though, flying to, to St. Louis, and it was quite sad because. All of our our grandparents and relatives were there, and you know, you know, I'm not an emotional guy, but at that age, it was it was it was pretty traumatic, I guess, in a way. You get to St. Louis, and uh, what, what's your first impression? Granted, you're eight years old, eight nine years old, um, and then also being around the organization at that age. Um, you know, St. Louis was it was it was a cool city, and and we enjoyed it um, as kids, and we moved into. A neighborhood in uh, Creefcore Old Farm Estates, um, right off Olive Boulevard, uh-huh. and went to Fernbridge Elementary School and started to make friends. And before you know it, I'd had uh, we had a great basement at our house. I mean, it was really cool. There there were very few like poles and walls, and it was a great hockey arena. Oh, that's so, perfect. Yeah, so we would have I would have uh, you know four, five, six, seven buddies over after school, and we'd play f- basement hockey almost every day. And, you know, just like every other kid, you know, yeah. we played football and baseball and, you know, everything. So it was, I, I adapted pretty well. I think all of us did, all the kids. At the time, we had five kids. My brother came along later. Um, but, you know, when you you look back, my father, you know, moved a family of seven total, um, him and his, and my mother and five kids, sight unseen to St. Louis. I mean, you know, and look, look what happened. I mean, he became a, an icon in the city and as a broadcaster. So I think he made the right choice. Yeah, I would say so. Did, did he take you to the to the arena quite a bit? Checker Dome, I suppose? No, it was the arena back then. It was then. the arena, then Checker Dome, then, then arena. Then arena, okay. exactly. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the Checker Dome when Ralston bought the team in the mid-'70s from the Solomons. Yeah, he took me, you know, as a kid, I would go on Saturday games and sit with my mother in Section 106, Row L, seat three and four. Wow. Yeah, well, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, um, but I, I didn't go to too many games at that age. Um, but like a lot of kids, I would listen to every game. And I would listen with my transistor radio under the pillow at night. And if I had a dollar for every person that's come up to me, Tim, and said, when I was a kid, I listened to your dad with a transistor radio under my pillow. I could retire right now. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, so, you know, as a kid, I, I would go to the games on the weekends. And then as a teenager, I started to go and sit with my dad in the booth. He would take me on one or two road trips a year. And then in high school, I started doing some work. Um, I worked for the coaches, actually. I, I kept stats oh. for Red Berenson in, in, in 79, 80, 80, 81. And, um, you know, it, it, back then, I mean, now they have all these analytics and computers and I would literally track ice time for all the Blues players for the entire game. Now, you know, that's a challenge. I was about to say, that seems like yeah. that would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, because, you know, you got two, two-thirds of a line going off, and you say, okay, he was on for 40 seconds, and then an, another guy comes on. And, yeah, it was it was cool. And between periods, I would go down to the coach's office and uh, give Red Berenson the, the information, and it, it was a cool job. Yeah, you know? I would imagine. So, so you're around the players. Um do you develop a rapport with the players? You're, what, 2021-ish then? Yeah. Um, my dad, back then, you know, when he came to St. Louis, he was 32 or 33. And as you probably know, the Blues had an older team then. I mean, a really old team. I mean, there are quite a few players that were older than my dad. 
you know, the Glenn Halls and the Al Arbors and the Dickie Moores. And we, he would hang out with the players, you know, quite a bit, which, you know, nowadays yeah. I'm in my 50s, you know, th those guys are mostly in their 20s. So, mm -hmm. um, but we would have some of the players over for dinner. Um, my dad would uh, take me on camping trips with particularly Red Berenson, who was a huge outdoorsman, uh, Bobby Plager, some of the other people. So, yeah, I got to know the players really well. It yeah. was it was it was awesome. The thing that I have found and who is. Oh, I, I don't know if you uh, happen to hear us talking about uh, the final round at Bell Reeve and I'm out on the driving range and I'm standing next to Al McInnes and we've you know, I've interviewed him in the past, but it's not like he would, you know, know or care or anything like that. Him being, you know, he just kind of, you know, Al just does his thing. And uh, and we wind up BSing, you know, for 30 minutes. And it was just like Tiger, Fowler, Kepka, Scott, you know, the final few pairings. Um, and we just wind up BSing for 30 minutes while watching the guys hit the balls. And I was telling them about an interview I did with Kelly Chase for the podcast and um, how Chase said, for some reason, and he gave his theories as to why hockey has a way of weeding out the assholes. <laughs> and I said, and I was saying to Al, I said, in my experience covering teams, never really covered much of the NBA. I've covered NBA players, but not necessarily teams, but certainly covered the NFL and the Rams were here in baseball and the Blues and college teams. For whatever reason, hockey players, I mean, not just like 75%, almost 100% are just great guys, down-to-earth guys. I would imagine that was the same way in the in the 70s and the 80s. I can't imagine it it suddenly got good. I would imagine it's always been that way. Was that was that and is that your experience still today? Yeah, I honestly Tim, I can I've been lucky enough to to be an NHL broadcaster for almost 30 years. I was in the minors for 6 years. I can count literally on one hand the number of bad guys I've met and it's great. I mean, you know, even today the guys are making so much more money and they have so many more things that occupy their time. You know, you go to the locker room and there are, you know, when I was a young guy and going with my dad, there was maybe, you know, my father, Gus Kyle, one reporter from the Post, one for the Globe. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Now you go in there on a, on a non-game day and there are easily 20, 25 reporters. And then... Obviously, as the season goes along and the playoffs, it picks up. So, but the players haven't changed. I mean, they're just down to earth, you know, guys that will give their time and do charity work and things like that. I think the biggest reason I'm, I'm asked that a lot is most of these guys come from small towns, whether it's in Canada, even the U.S., um, or small towns in, in Europe and things like that. And they haven't been coddled and given things at a young age, and they've they worked for what they've gotten. And I think they. The, you know, by and large, they're down-to-earth guys that appreciate what they have. Yeah, and it sets a tone uh, when the veterans conduct themselves in such a great way, even if they were to be uh, prima donnas when they get to the league. So you're around the Blues in the 1980s, and, you know, that's when my memory of the Blues starts kicking up, the early 1980s. And what I would always remember as a Blues fan, I couldn't wait for April in the playoffs. I just couldn't wait, and still to this day. I mean, it's just the best. You know the weather's about to warm up. Yeah. You don't turn the air conditioning on. The windows are open, and you're watching playoff hockey. And back then, it was the Norris Division, so you were going to see, let's see if I can rattle it off, Blackhawks, Red Wings, North Stars, and Leafs, right? Yep. And then the Blues. And so you'd see those teams. It was familiar, but it always seemed, minus 86, it was going to be either the first or second round, and then and then it would be, unfortunately, 
tortured. And, and for the most part, unfortunately, that's been the case still with the exception of 2001 and 2016. As you're growing up and you're around these guys and these teams, um, what's your impression of, of some of the great teams and the names from those Blues teams of the 80s? Well, I think the best team that, that I saw was the 80-81 team that had 105 points. They fought all year for first overall with the Islanders. It was a really good team. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly the numbers, but they had something like, you know, seven or eight 20-goal scores. I mean, Babich had over 50. Um, obviously, Bernie Federico and Sutter. Um, but they had Jorgen Pedersen and Blake Dunlop and Blair Chapman. Liute was um, outstanding yeah, in goal that like year. I, I think looking back, there are two things that kept that team from advancing past the second round. They they beat Pittsburgh in a five-game series that they should have won in three or four. That was a series that Crumbine scored in double overtime. I'm sure you remember that one. And then they lost to the Rangers in six. But they got worn down, number one. Number two, um, their defense wasn't quite good enough. I mean, it, it was good, but it wasn't great. And they also lost Perry Turnbull. I think late in the year, he had his appendix removed or something mm. like that. He had sur surgery, not major surgery, but surgery, and he couldn't play. So they lost they lost one of their big wingers, and they just couldn't score enough. Yeah. But that was, a, that was a really good team. I mean, mm. they had the offense, but again, they didn't have, they didn't have a McInnes or a Pronger on defense. Right. And, and you know, even... You know, back then, today's game, you got to have a strong defense. You know that, Tim. So Yeah, the, the, the Blues teams of the 1980s, they were there, but they couldn't get over the top. There was that night in 1986. Now, are you around for that? What's no, I had on? left in had left, uh, okay. Yeah, I had left in January of 83 okay. um, to start my broadcasting career in right. a tiny town in Kansas. So I was gone. So you're the, in, what are you doing in a tiny town in Kansas? Is there uh, a hockey team there? No, I, I got hired um, at a station in, near Wichita, or an hour from Wichita, and I started doing basketball, and then I ended up doing sales and news. I was going to do football in the fall, but then I got my first job in the American Hockey League in September or late August of of 83. Now, this is interesting. Were you growing up like, I want to do hockey, or were you yeah. like, I just want to be a broadcaster? You know, I, I wanted to, to do hockey because I, I loved hockey so much, and I played hockey as a kid, played all the way to Junior B in St. Louis, and uh, obviously I would have done other sports, um, like any young broadcaster. Yeah. You or got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. I mean, so it was a, it was a town of 5,000 in Kansas. So I was gone from then till... Uh, you know, I came back for three years in uh, after my dad passed away in '89, um, so I wasn't there for the Monday Night Miracle. Obviously, watched it on TV and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, did you ever have a conversation with some of those guys about that night? Because people still talk about that night. You would think that the building held a hundred thousand people. Right. So many people say they were there for that thing. Uh, I've had hundreds of people tell me they left. Can you imagine leaving? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's an elimination game for the Blues. You on know, the threshold of going to the finals. finals. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of people left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> were, you, were, were you there? Oh, no, 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 no. I would have been nine, I believe. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have been there, but right. I, was, I was not there. I remember it. Yeah. I remember it. Yeah. It, it probably is the most famous game in Blues history. Um, although you could argue that, you know, game seven of well, the, the second Hawks? round in the first year when Ron oh. Schock scored in double overtime to get him to the finals. I mean, yeah. that's... Sure, that's Obviously pretty major. Bigger, but 
you know, for the modern fan, that was probably the biggest game that has occurred. Right, and and the fashion with which it happened and yeah, the significance down. of it. I mean, hell, even if that was a game in November, it would still be something you'd be like, oh, wasn't that right. incredible? But for it to be game six of, uh, what, the Campbell Conference final, I right. guess is what it was called at that time? Yeah, down 5-2 in the third, and they come yeah. back and win 6-5, and then they lose game 7-2-1. to one. I mean, uh, Frustrating. Absolutely. What, what stories do you remember from your, your father? I mean, a, a legendary broadcaster, a legendary voice. What do you remember? You mean stories or yeah, being sto- around stories him? Being or... around him with the Blues in the 1980s and, 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 and you know, I would imagine he played a role in, in giving you counsel getting into this business. Yeah, you know, you look back at his his tenure as a Blues announcer and he was there for 21 years. I mean, he saw some real highs and some real lows. I mean, y- you think about it. The first three years, they go to the final. I mean, he, he was there the second and third right. year, and he must have been thinking in his mind, well, man, this is, Absolutely. This is great. <laughs> this is great. We're going to win them. We're <laughs> going to win a ton of Stanley Cups. And then, unfortunately, they fire Scotty Bowman, and then they fire Al Arbor, and it's just like, really? <laughs> really? Two of the greatest coaches ever. Uh-huh. One, two. And, and then they get all, you know, they have the lows of the, you know, early, not early 70s, but 73 to, say, 77 before Federico and Sutter came, I mean, they had some bad teams then. And I, I know my father one night, he said this in an article before, and, you know, the Blues, maybe their worst year ever, they won 18 games, and they were losing 5-1 after one. And he he, he said to himself, um, he gave himself a pep talk. He said, you know, this team is terrible. They're not going anywhere. I was terrible in the first period. You know, don't go down the tubes with them. And he gave himself a pep talk. And, but you can imagine, Tim, that as a broadcaster, you know, you came to St. Louis and you you saw those great teams and they were dismantled. And then it was really tough. And they almost got sold, you know, a couple of times to out-of-town interest, uh, really close to going to Saskatoon before right. Harry Arnest came in. So, and then they had a, you know... Uh, you know, they were revitalized in the mid eight, early eighties, late eighties. Um, almost went to the final, as you said, in '86. So yeah. he, he saw. I think my dad saw everything except the cup yeah. in his tenure as a Blues announcer. Quite honestly, uh, also was a part of a, a sports department at KMOX that that sounds like you're just rattling off a field of dreams of broadcasters with you know Jack Buck, as you made reference to. Uh, Bob Costas getting his career started with the Dan Deardorf. Lewis, Dan Deardorf. I feel like now I'm going to miss somebody unintentionally. Uh, but the point is, is that sports department was just stacked with talent. Yeah, and, and you know, a guy like Jack Carney, who was a legend doing the morning shows, and yeah, it was it was incredible. And I I um, not only did I sit with my dad and do stats for him, and um, he also did a lot of football. I don't know if people realize that today; they probably don't. But he was a excellent foot, football announcer. He did a lot of Mizzou games. He did a lot of big red games. And, you know, I would spot for him mm-hmm. on the on the big red games. And then when Jack Buck ended his baseball duties, he would take over. And so I'd spot for, for Jack. Um, I remember, you know, sitting there in the booth at the old Bush Stadium and there was a young sort of chubby kid in the back sitting there, probably eight or nine years old, and it was Joe. <laughs> and, and Jack would turn around after, uh, you know, after commercial break and 
Joe Buck, how you doing back there? <laughs> you know, and he was just sitting back there, and that was my first meeting with Joe. But, you know, hey, as a young guy, to, to be around, obviously my dad is a broadcaster, and I got to work a little with Bob uh, Costas spotting for him on Mizzou. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's it's just like... It's invaluable. It, it's invaluable, Tim. You know, at the time, I probably didn't know how lucky I was and, you know, how great these guys were. I mean, you could argue that Jack Buck was the greatest baseball announcer ever, certainly in the top five of any anyone's grouping. And you could also argue that Bob Costas is the most talented broadcaster, period. You know, whether it's hosting or play-by-play. I mean, the whole package. I mean, and to, to be around those guys right. a little bit like I was. At that age. At that age, yeah. so impressionable. And, you know, at the time, I wanted to be a broadcaster. But, you know, obviously, as you said, Camel X was, they were loaded. It mm-hmm. was... It was you know, when I was a teenager, you know, you know, a lot of times your friends would go out after dinner. And, oh, let's go to a party or mm-hmm. go hang out at McDonald's. I'd, I was a geek. I'd, I'd sat at, sit at home and listen to Costas on Sports Open Line from 6 to 8 o'clock. <laughs> he was so good. Or Mr. Buck. I mean, yeah. that's what I did most yeah. nights, you know. So you're in Kansas, and, and how long are you there? Luckily, only eight months. <laughs> oh, nice. That was me with Little Rock. I was yeah. only there eight months. All yeah, right. It felt so, like eight years. Yeah, I'm telling you. Right. I'm still like, I got to go back to Little Rock and say hello. I was only there for eight months. Nobody even remember or care. So where do you go from Kansas? I got a job. Um, you know, my my dad knew a guy, and uh, I'm sure Joe Buck has told you stories like that. And he knew the guy that was the um, head of Hockey Night in Canada. Oh, wow. Named, pretty big shit. Yeah, absolutely. Know. His name was Don Wallace. And... Um, and they controlled the radio rights for the Toronto Maple Leafs and their farm team. And the farm team needed a new announcer, St. Catharines, Ontario, which is between Toronto and Buffalo, okay. not far from Niagara Falls. So um, I applied for the job, and actually the, uh, the general manager of the radio station from St. Catharines, he flew to Pratt, Kansas to interview me. And like my father's like, he's coming to Pratt to interview you. That is I said, unheard yeah. of. That is unheard of. And he of. did. And um, I got the job, and I was the broadcaster for the Saint Catherine Saints um, in 1983. All right. Yeah. So and- it was a it was a huge break. Obviously, I wouldn't have gotten the job if it wasn't for my dad. But I got in the door and. You know, it started from there. Yeah. So how long are you in, in with the St. Catherine Saints? I was there three years, and then they moved to Newmarket, which was north of, is north of Toronto, and it's, it's, it's almost like a suburb of Toronto. Okay. Uh, very expensive. So number one, I wanted to get—I didn't want to move there. Um, number two, I had, um, I had a green card at the time, and technically I was supposed to surrender the green card when I left the United States. But I didn't. I said, my dad said, leave it at home. Don't take it with you when you cross the border. Cause I was a Canadian citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad said, you know, you should probably try and get back to the States cause you're, you're going to lose that green card eventually. You know, if you're, if you're just sort of like not filing tax returns. All this. <laughs> so I applied for a job in Glens Falls, New York for the Adirondack Red Wings, the, the Red Wings top farm club. Mm-hmm. So I kept my green card and I got a job there and was there for three years. Back to the United States. Yeah. All right. Well, that's and now cheap. I'm a U.S. citizen, so I can tell the story without, yeah, absolutely without, without like fear the law's of getting be deported. Here. <laughs> John Kelly is no longer the Blues broadcaster. Right. He's been deported. Right. <laughs> There's a new hunt on the way. Exactly. So you're in you're in New York uh, three years. Yeah. 
And uh, how was that experience? You know, have you ever been up to up, upstate New York? I've just one time for Ozzy Smith going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's uh, it's a great area, just north of Saratoga, about an hour north of Albany, and a smallish town, maybe fifteen thousand. Really cold in the winters, yeah. but um, the Red Wings were great to me. Their organization and uh, Bill Deneen, um was the coach. He was great. He was a friend of my dad's from Ottawa. He passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, he actually scouted for the Blues um, in the in the nineties, uh, but it was great. Mm-hmm. It was it was a, it was good. And you know, looking back, Tim, I really enjoyed. I know it sounds sort of silly, but I enjoyed the the bus rides and and getting to know the players and learning the business and and the do's and don'ts of what you do as a broadcaster. I think that stuff's so helpful. I mean, I'm coming at it from my you know my career was television initially, but when somebody doesn't quote, go away to a smaller market, mm-hmm. I feel like, and then they're like just wanting to, and I get it. I understand you don't want I me. Mean, I wouldn't have, I, mean, I was, Little Rock was a big market really relative to start out. And like yeah. some of my friends were starting out in South Dakota. Uh, I feel like you learn more then, even if it's not for like five years, uh, that really helps you down the road. And I don't know yeah. why that is, but I feel like it's helpful. I, I think it is because again, you're, you're learning how to number one, do your job, you know, and you're doing so many elements of the well, job. Well, you don't too. have, you don't have a color guy, right? You don't have an engineer. You know, there are, there are a number of nights where the Zamboni broke <laughs> in the middle of the intermission. And <laughs> so what happens? You talk, <laughs> you know, I, I remember, you know, you had two or three pages of press notes and, you know, you start reading press notes and, oh, in the central division, Adirondack is, you know, 14, two and two. And, you know, you, you improvise, or mm-hmm. if you're lucky enough, there's a, a scout at the game, and you grab him and interview him. But it happened more than one time where yeah. that, you know, that occurred. So I think you learn the business. But more than that, as I said, you you learn to deal with people, uh, the protocols of the business and the sport. And, you know, on the bus, you, you learn your seat on the bus. Oh, and, yeah. So important. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it was a great experience for me. Three years there, and then... Well, I was there for three years, and then um, my last year in, in Adirondack, I got the job as the backup to Marv Albert doing Ranger games. So I did about 45, 50 games that year. That's pretty huge, isn't it? It, it was huge, I yeah. Mean, that's, that's a monster. So were you working for MSG? It was MSG, yeah. yeah. Um, so that year I did... 45, 50 Ranger games on radio. I would take the train down to the city to do the games. And then I still did, you know, 30, 40 games in Adirondack. So I was really busy. And unfortunately that year, obviously, tragically, my father found out in November he had cancer. So it was a extremely difficult year. He passed away in February in the middle of the season. What kind so of cancer did he have? He had lung cancer. Um, he found out in actually found out in late October, um, and he he had back problems. You know he had he thought he had a, you know a disc issue or something, but as it turned out, the cancer had already spread to his back. And you know he he when he was diagnosed, he didn't have he didn't have much of a chance. Yeah. You know, how did he handle? Did he did he tell you guys or did he just, uh, just, just tell? You know, I, I, I remember it obviously very well. I was in Washington for a Ranger game, and I was getting ready. Um, it was the day of the game. I came back to the hotel after the morning skate, 
And, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So my sister found out where I was. She called me on, on my hotel phone and told me. Mm-hmm. And I had to do a game that night. It was really hard. Hardest mm-hmm. game I've ever had to do in my life. Um, and then I called him the next day because I, I don't know if I wanted to call him that day or he was upset or we were all upset. So mm-hmm. he said, hey, yeah, it's got me pretty good is what he told me. He goes, it's got me pretty good. But, you know, he continued to do games for maybe a month and, um, you know, went downhill pretty quickly. Yeah. It was really hard. The outpouring from this community and really the league when he passed away, um, I know it doesn't make it any easier, of course, but I, I would imagine still a young man at that point, even though now you're at a point where you're calling Rangers games, um, I would imagine that gave you and your family uh, an understanding of the appreciation for just how talented and good uh, your father was at calling games and then the way people respected him around the league. Yeah, it was, uh, the outpouring was amazing. It really was. Uh, they had a dinner for him in early January. Uh, Susie Matthew, the former PR director, who's, you know, hardworking, brilliant lady, she put it together. It was, it was downtown. Um, and, you know, some of my dad's old friends from Canada came in for that. And Mr. Buck spoke, Bob Costas. Dan Deardorff. It, it was an amazing night. My father was, he was in St. Luke's at the time. He couldn't go to the dinner. You know, he, he, he was pretty sick. But they, um, the Copplers from Channel 11 oh, arranged yeah. for a closed circuit feed to come from the dinner to his hotel room. Oh, really? And he watched it. And uh, That had to mean the world. Yeah, but I think it was hard for him, too. You know, I think it was very emotional for him, yeah. you know. Um, he actually is his his older brother Hal, who was 16 years older than my dad. He was a broadcaster. That's how my dad got into it. He he stayed with him at the room because he knew it was going to be a tough night for him. Yeah. No, not not to say he didn't appreciate. Right. Just tough seeing. T- it was yeah. you know I think in a way my father felt like it was the going away dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say it that yeah. way, but yeah. And he died about a month later. Wow. Yeah. Hope you're enjoying our conversation with John Kelly here on the Tim McKernan Show on InsideSTL.com and the Inside STL Podcast Network. Our sponsors make it possible, and I say it over and over again because I want to make sure it is crystal clear. Without the sponsors, the podcast doesn't exist. The content might be great. You might think the content sucks. I have no idea. I'm pretty pleased with what we've done over the last year. But I know this. Without sponsors, we don't have a business, and that means we wouldn't have a podcast. So please make sure you support the sponsors. James Carlton and the seven licensed team members at his office office pride themselves on providing a first-class customer experience. One of their goals is to never have a phone call go to voicemail so that when you have a problem or a question, you'll have it addressed by their team immediately. 314-961-4800. 314-961-4800. That's the phone number. Or you can go online at carltoninsurance.net, see what the good word is. Plus, when you type the name in in Google reviews or Facebook reviews, you see the kind of response and feedback James Carlton gets. That speaks to the quality of work and customer service they have there. And they can save you money. That's the bottom line. The thing that I've enjoyed so much about getting to know James is the quick response times and the turnarounds. I've dealt with other insurance agents, and it's like, oh, you know, we'll get back to you next week. Or they don't even say it, and then you're like, I guess they're just not going to get back to me. And all of a sudden, an email pops up from a week earlier uh, responding. And you just don't have that. This is... What he does is what sets him apart. And the nice thing for you is they do all the work for you when you make the switch. James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, 314-961-4800 or online at carltoninsurance.net. Now, back to John Kelly. 
at that point for you? Now you're calling games. I mean, you're with the New York Rangers, you know, in part. Yeah. Um, what does that do to you as a broadcaster to carry on? You have the legacy of this great broadcaster. You're now calling games in the league yourself. How are you impacted? Well, it was a really, you know, really, really hard time, obviously. And um, that spring, um, Jack Quinn called me up, the former president of the Blues, and said he wanted me to come and sort of replace him and work with Ken Wilson. And at the time, it was, you know, emotions, and it, it was a tough decision. And at first, I didn't want to do it. Why? Uh, well, you know, Tim, I was always stubborn as a kid, and and I always, you know, I always said, you know what, if I get to the NHL, I want to get there on my own. And I don't want my father to call me up and say, hey, come work with me, which he actually did. A few years before that, I was in the minors, and... He said, why don't you come to, back to St. Louis and work with me? And but I said, no, I'd rather sort of get there on my own. You know, in hindsight, do I regret it? Not really. I, th I think that that's just the way I felt. And, you know, my son's a broadcaster now, and I think he feels the same way. Um, so Jack kept calling me and calling me, and finally I agreed to come back. And I worked with Ken and the Blues for three years, and, you know, a big reason why I did it was for my mother and our family. I, I just felt it would be good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it was good for me to come back here as well and to be around them. And, you know, it's such a tough time. So I, I gave up what I thought was a really good job with the Rangers, and I came back here and, and, and worked for three years. Um, but unfortunately, at the time, it didn't work out. Basically, you know, I know that, you know, a lot of people, you know, heard Ken's comments after he got fired, you know, in 04. And um, we got along fine. We really did. But basically, you had two play-by-play -play guys, and we shared the mic. It just wasn't working. Right. It, was, it was a dumb setup. In hindsight, I should have never agreed to it because you're asking for problems, yeah. you know. It, you know, in baseball, you have... It's common for, you know, two guys to do the play-by-play -play nowadays. But in hockey... You know, back then I would do one period, one night. The next night I'd do two, and it just wasn't a good setup. It was, was it was there tension? Not really. I mean, you know, Ken and I got along fine, um, except for my last ever game in my first tenure. Um, Ken was he was missing games at the time. He was doing some baseball. I think I'm not sure for Oakland or. Uh, the yeah, Angels or something. Was, yeah, I think he, it was Angels. I think. You're yeah. Right, yeah. So he would miss, he would miss games. So the setup was in in the playoffs that year. Um, I would do for game one. Say I would do two periods uh, for game one. He would do the middle period. The next night I would do one period. And the rules reverse. So he had missed a couple of games, but it was laid out that I was going to do game six, I was going to do two periods. And the day before I went to Jack Quinn and I said, Jack, I know Ken's missed a few games, but here was the schedule that was laid out and I'm supposed to do two periods tomorrow night. And I have a feeling Ken might come in and say, well, I missed some games. I'm going to do it. He goes, oh no, no, you're, you're, you're doing two periods just like it was, you know, yeah. scheduled. And so we get to the game and I brought it up to Ken because I, I just knew in my heart there was going to be a problem. 
I said, Ken, just to be clear, I'm doing the first and third tonight. No, no, I've missed these games. And so obviously we had a big disagreement. And I called Jack on his phone across the arena. I said, Jack, here's what's happened. Ken says he's doing the game. I went to you yesterday, and you told me I'm doing two periods. And he basically said, I'm tired of you guys fighting. Work it out. And he hung up on me. And I was blown away, but I was mad. I was really pissed because I'm a man of, of honesty and, I think, integrity. And he lied to me, flat out lied to me. So I said to Ken, I said, Ken, I don't care what you say. I'm doing two periods tonight. So, and he just got really mad. And so I, the game started, and I could tell right away he wasn't going to talk. He, he sat there next to me with his arms folded because in his mind he felt he should be doing the play-by-play. I know this probably sounds childish, but I think sometimes as a person you have to stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was told something, and, you know, I felt I was in my right. So he sat there the whole first period like this and didn't say a word. And finally, after a few minutes, I, I went on talk back with our producer, uh, the late Tom McLaughlin, and I said, he's not talking. I said... Why don't you get Bruce Affleck's mic open in the studio and let him do color with me from the studio? From the studio. And he did. You know, you know, the audience probably thought something was funny or whatever. And then Ken did play-by-play in the second period. And did you then do color? I did color. Yeah, that's my job. Yeah, yeah. And then I did the third period. Did he talk in the third period? Nope. Didn't talk in the third. And the Blues lost the game, and the series was over. And that summer for the second time in as many summers, I was offered another job. The year before I I was offered the job in Minnesota, thought about it, you know, seriously, Um, because I just didn't like this shared microphone. And the dynamic. Yeah, the dynamic. But again, Ken and I had never fought until that last Mm -hmm. game. Um, And then I got offered the job in Tampa. And initially I turned it down. And then the gentleman that, that was the executive producer of Sunshine Network, Tom Hastings. He called me two or three more times, and I just felt, you know what? It's not a good dynamic. I was lied to by the president of the hockey team. I just probably need to leave. And I left. Wow. wow. And it was really hard. It I really would was. I imagine so. Yeah, because, you know, the Blues were my team and family here. Family here, the connection. and uh, But it wasn't right, Tim. And I think, again, I think, you have to stand up for what you believe in. And, you know, I don't think I was being treated well and, you know, correctly. And I was promised some things when I came here by Jack and they didn't turn out. So I left. Wow. Yeah. And I would imagine now looking back on it, what it's been, John, 24-ish years, right? Ballpark since you left. Um, well, that was in 90, uh, 92. 92. Okay. So 26 years now. Yeah. Uh, that you're that you look at that move and you go that was the right move at that time. Do, you don't think twice on that, or do you? I think it was the right move. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it was the right move for two reasons because it turned out well. Um, I, I did three years in Tampa Bay, then got hired in Colorado right. for nine and had had a, had, nine, a lovely, had a lovely little run there. Oh, right? A little little run <laughs> there, yeah. Um, at the same time, I think that I was sticking to my principles and my beliefs and my gut. And uh, I, I knew the situation here at the time was not right, and I left. Yeah, how's your, fa- how's your family? Because, I mean, that's, it's one of the factors with broadcasters. You know, eventually, hopefully, you get to a point where you do stay in a place for a good long while, which you've certainly done, and, and now a couple of spots. 
but how is your wife, your family, how are, how are they feeling? You know, you went through it in the late sixties with your dad coming and you were eight years old from Ottawa. Yeah. Um, how much of a factor is that in your wife's feelings and so on and so forth when you're making these moves? Uh, well, at the time I wasn't married. Oh, okay. So well, I, that takes that out of, out of yeah, play. I, I had a girlfriend and you know, not a big deal. She didn't come with me. And so, you know, I felt bad for my mother because I know it really probably was hard for her yeah. to, to see, to see me, um, in my mind treated the way I was. And cause Jack Buck or Jack Quinn and my dad were good friends. And, um, you know, I felt like that I was not dealt the right hand. So after that a phone few years. call, when you call before the game about, I'm calling the first and third and yeah. he's going to call the second. And you had had the conversation the day before the way you're conveying that story. It sounds like that wasn't an isolated incident of you feeling like you were told something and it wasn't delivered on. Right. There, there were multiple things. There were other things. And I, I don't other... really want to get into all the no, other things. No, that's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm you not know... looking for you to, to do that if you're not comfortable doing it. But the, your premise is that wasn't a one-time thing. There were other elements that led to some frustration on your end. Yeah. Yeah. There was. It, yeah. I don't think I was, uh, you know, remember I had done six years in the American Hockey League. I felt like I was ready for the NHL and did a good job. And um, I, I know that Jack wasn't happy with my my presence on TV. And back then we didn't do a ton of TV games, maybe 20, 25. And um, he, he wanted me to work on my on cameras and things like that. And so, you know what I did? I did. I worked at it. As a matter of fact, I called up. Uh, Bob Costas and said, could you help me? And I went to his house and showed him some tapes and he gave me a few pointers. But he also said to me at the time, he said, you know what, John? He said, if you don't get any better than you are right now, it's, it's totally fine. Mm -hmm. In other words, he said, you're, you're, you're fine. You're good. Mm -hmm. Um, coming from Bob Costas, that meant yeah, a lot. Pretty... So, you know, he, so Jack Quinn was, he wasn't, I don't know if he was using that as a reason to, you know, not use me as the sole announcer or not, or, or what, uh, you know, and I admit, I probably, I, I had very little TV experience, Tim. And, you know, you know, from yourself, it's not, you know, you don't just, you don't just sit down in a chair in a TV studio and all of a sudden you're great. Right. It does, you know, very few guys that are, are great and they're naturally great. And mm -hmm. it, it took work and, mm -hmm. you know, so. So when Ken said what he said, and that was 2004, and I believe it was an interview on uh, KFS, on this station, yeah, yes. with I think Mike Claiborne, <laughs> if I'm not yeah. mistaken, yeah, and it became a huge story, yeah. Uh, and I don't have the quotes up in front of me, but it was up to paraphrase. If your last name isn't Kelly Buck, or Buck. Kelly, yeah, right, in you know you're in this market, you know, and he 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 went off. I don't yeah. think anybody was anticipating that. Maybe maybe people knew that he was going to fire. I have he no went idea. nuclear. He didn't yes. go off. I mean, that was, that was, that was unreal. I mean, that's like still 14 years later, a legendary, were you stunned by that? Yeah, I was, I, yeah. I didn't hear it. I was in uh, Denver at the time and, you know, I had just gotten the job and I didn't move here for, a, for a few months after that, but you yeah. You just got I, the blues job, but you're still in Denver. So yeah, I, okay. I didn't hear the interview. Right. So, um, yeah, I was, I was extremely disappointed that he went that way. Um, and I'll tell you the main reason why is because when he got hired by the Blues, you know who recommended him for the job? Dan Kelly. Wow. Yeah, he, he at the time was doing, I think, Cincinnati baseball. He was doing some Chicago Blackhawks part-time. 
and they needed another announcer on TV with my dad. I'm not sure what happened, but one of us, uh, you know, color guys laughed or whatever. And he went to the blues and recommended Ken. And he was also gracious enough to say on those TV games, when I'm there, you know, I'll let you do a period. So that's sort of how that sort of began where Ah, one guy did one, right? To me, it's a dumb setup, but my dad was nice enough to, to do that for him and try to help him out. So when you, when you look at it in that perspective, that's why it really angered me. Yeah. Understandably so. Uh, and I think most people were kind of like, oh, they, because I mean, people, we never know. I mean, to an extent I was aware of, there was frustration. I think that, oh, you didn't come to the morning skates and that would, in in the world of hockey, like I try to explain that to Mm -hmm. people who aren't in the world of hockey, not that I'm in the world of hockey. I just was around it when I was doing television that the morning skates for for guys who play the game, that's just an important thing. I mean, that's yeah. just because it's a way to get to know what's going on. It shows that you're there. And I just remember hearing that that was something that, again, but it wasn't something that the public would even know about. And even if they did know about it, they go, why would that matter? But that was a thing. I knew that. I didn't know that there was this underlying going on. But, I mean, hell, you hadn't worked with him for, what, at that point, 12 years, I guess. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. But, the, you know, the other thing, Tim, is that his relationship and I know this because I've talked to people over the years, his relationship with the Blues had become fractured. And he did not get fired because John Kelly was going to be hired. He got fired because they weren't happy with Ken Wilson. Mm -hmm. And there's a big distinction. Right. Big distinction. Yeah, and that's an important thing uh, to note because people ask and... They wonder, well, what happened? And, and there's there's elements of that that just obviously haven't been made public because most people, when something happens, they go, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll issue a benign statement of some kind, thank people, and then just right. go on, even if internally they're, you know, right. erupting. Yeah, I don't know why to this day why he was so bitter and, you know, was so angry with the Bucks and the Kellys because mm-hmm. the Bucks and the Kellys had nothing to do with what happened to him. Have you had a conversation with him since 2004? Uh no, because he has not worked in the NHL. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. I haven't seen him. Haven't obviously heard from him. Right. No, he, yeah. he's not around in St. Louis anymore. I think he has a job in uh, Oregon or Washington or something like that. And so, no. Okay. Yeah, to this day, I don't know why he did that. Yeah. That's uh, interesting to hear the backstory for, for certain. You made reference to your time in Colorado. I mean, your first year there, they win the cup. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good deal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and I would imagine... Now, I don't know, because that was their first year going, going from Quebec, was it not? Or yes, was it, it was. It was their first no, year going they, from Quebec. Can you imagine the people in Quebec City? Oh, you my Because they, they, they had some great teams in Quebec, and then the owner, Marcelo Boo, decided he couldn't compete anymore, and he sells to to a group from Denver, and they win the Cup. I mean, it was it was amazing. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I mean, what went on in the late 90s, and you can speak to this. This is coming from a Blues fan's perspective, who's kind of on the periphery and probably still upset about, you know, uh, you know, Iserman from 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 way downtown, <laughs> you know, in that, on that night and what was a double overtime. Yeah, because I'm in college. If the Blues win that game, they play Colorado. They play in the Colorado, third round. and exactly. because the Blues lose that game, uh, and it's still, I mean, you still see the highlight, and you just go, ah, it's just like a yeah. kick every time, still. But because the Blues lose that game, it then sets up the showdown with the Red Wings. And then that became a thing for a number of years, the Red Wings and the Avalanche. I mean, that was bloodlust. That, that, that was, um, you know, since I've been watching hockey, obviously announcing hockey, that's the best rivalry I've ever seen. Really? Amazing. It was it was vicious and mean. And 
but they were the, like the two best teams, so, wait, and they hated it. it was, yeah, but that's what made it so good, yeah. is, is they weren't just average teams that fought every night. They were great teams that won cups. They won three. The Avs won two during that time, and they also fought, and they also had blood. And um, I mean, one night after a game at McNichols in the in the first that first series in '96, um, or maybe it's the next year because it was the big incident that set it off was in Game Six the night the Avalanche beat the Red Wings. Claude Lemieux hit Chris Draper, yeah, the Draper right in front of the Detroit's yeah. bench. Vicious bad hit. He got suspended for two games in the final. Draper broke his jaw. It was awful. That that set it off. The next year, after a game in McNichols, Scotty Bowman got off the team bus behind McNichols after the game. He saw Lemieux walk into his car and and just verbally went after him. I mean, that's how vicious it was. Wow. And then one night you had... Scotty and Mark Crawford, the coaches, went at it between the benches and almost came to, to blows. I mean, but it was more than that. You know, I, I hope that type of thing didn't overshadow the great players and the great games that those teams had because mm-hmm. it was it was amazing. It really was. 96, they win the Cup, and then in 01, they're playing the Blues yeah. in the Western Conference Finals. And I remember here, uh, having covered the team, and I was at... I was at the game with Sackick in overtime, right, to, mm-hmm. uh, to wrap it up in five, game five. And that's a series that even— No, that game was in Denver. Th- that's, what, that's what I'm saying. I was out, I was oh, out you in, were there. I was, okay, I was out I'm in Denver sorry. for that one. Yeah, and, uh, and I remember, if I'm not mistaken, either three of those five games or four of those five games went to overtime. Yeah. So it was a tight series, but unfortunately, from the Blues' perspective, you know, four of the five went Colorado's way. And, uh, and I, I remember at the start of the series, if I'm not mistaken, Forsberg— had some some kind of surgery. Yeah. The Blues were fresh off of sweeping the defending. I don't think they won the Cup the year before, but they had represented the Western Conference against the Devils. The Stars, they swept the Stars. Yeah. And now you hear Forsberg's going to be out. Yeah, like, he oh had my a splenectomy. God, that's what it was. Because I wanted to say it was an appendectomy, but it was, a, it was something with a spleen. Yeah. And it like, happened in Game 7 against um, L.A.? Against L.A., that's right. It was that's a right. vicious series. Yeah. And he actually, he didn't even know. He finished the game. They, the Avalanche won the game. And he... He lived, you know, up in the mountains, about an hour from Denver, maybe. So after the game, he went to a restaurant to get something to eat, and he he had severe stomach pains, and he called the trainer, and the trainer said, you better go to the hospital. And as it turns out, his spleen had ruptured. He had the surgery right away. If he would have gone home that night to the mountains, it could have been a tragic outcome. He's an hour away from... He's an hour away from the hospital. Um, or, you know, gone to sleep and, you know, sort of brushed it off. Right. But you're right. I mean, the Blues had, without Forsberg, they had a great chance to, to win that series. And now with the benefit of looking back 17 years, and you're seeing it from an eventual Stanley Cup championship, Ray Bork being the big the yeah. centerpiece of that whole story, we look back on it now and go, oh, yeah, that was Roman Turek, and all, all due respect, of course, to both parties. And then Brent Johnson gets the start in Game 5. Yeah. And going up against Patrick Waugh, and you're kind of like, well, that probably explains, <laughs> that probably helps explain what happened. I, I think, you know, I, di- I didn't do the play-by-play of that series because the networks had taken over. Right. But I think if you tracked puck possession, shots on goal, scoring chances for the entire series, it would have been dead even. Dead even. Um the Blues uh, won game three in overtime. The Avs won game four on a goal by Stefan Yell. And then, as you said, Sackett scored the winner in overtime in game five. 
you know, I hate to say it, but if you switch goalies, oh, the Blues win the series. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was the difference. You know, you have McKinnis and Pronger and up front Kachuk and Demetra. You know, they the, had Mellonby that year, too. Yeah, Mellonby was great. Um, it, it was a dead, dead even series, but, you know, Turek just struggled for yeah. whatever reason. Right. And the, the thing that you said that's ironic is he was so good in the second round against Dallas. Exactly right. He was so good. Exactly right. Like, thought, okay, the, the disaster against the Sharks in the first round of the President's Trophy winning team the year before, yep. no one from, you know, yeah. back. Center ice. Yes. <laughs> it had been put away by the sweep. Of the Western Con- the right. Western Conference champions, let's go Roman Turk versus Patrick Y. We're gonna we're yeah. gonna show them and and it's like ah yeah <laughs> you know to the point that I remember this is classic Joel Quenville and I'd be curious what you think about this because you mentioned Bowman and Arbor but also Quenville mm-hmm. uh, can go go on that list. So there was a brief time in Game Four where he pulled Turk and put Johnson in there. Mm-hmm. And so before Game 5, I'm reporting for KMOV from, I think it was the Pepsi Center at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I see Joel walking to do his pregame media session, and I said, uh, hey, Joel, who's going to be a net? Because somebody had gotten word that it was going to be uh, that it was going to be Johnson. You know, it was a pretty significant game, elimination game, Western Conference Finals. And Quenville says to me, and it's just me, and I'm 24 or something, and he goes, the guy who was in there in the last game is going to be in there. And I thought... That was so, and I wasn't playing poker yet at the time, but we're both poker players. And in that moment, that was a tell to me because if he just, if it's Turek, he just says, yeah. Turek. Yeah. But he didn't want to be dishonest, but he also didn't want to say Johnson was starting. Yeah. And he actually apologized after the game because I guess he had kind of done that kabuki theater with a few reporters. And then Johnson goes out there and starts and plays pretty well. He played really well. You know, you know what he did also? I was in the stands for that game. And when they came out for warm up, Turek led the Blues on the ice. Oh wow! He, so he went he, he, he went pulled deep on that. Oh level. yeah, exactly. Wow! And then obviously Johnson started the game because you know it, protocol is the starting goalie He's always leads you guys. out. Yeah. Wow. So he was trying to 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 play really, you know, coy with the Blues or with the Avalanche, and you know, it, you know he played well, but obviously they lost the game. And then the Abs win yet another cup after beating the Blues in in five. Uh, the the decision to come back to St. Louis. Different circumstances, obviously, yeah. uh, than what 13, 15, 14, 15 years earlier. Yeah. Uh, tell me what that was like. Well, there are a lot of factors, and I, I say that the, the main reason that it ended up that I did come back was all the stars aligned, Tim. Number one, Ken Wilson lost his job. Number two, the, the Avs contract with Fox Sports Rocky Mountain was over. Um, and at the time... Cronky had bought the team maybe two years earlier. And so I was working for Rocky Mountain, and we didn't know if they were going to get another deal or if Cronky was going to start his own network. So my contract is up. Um, the, the contract with the, with the network and the abs was right. up. And the other factor, which was a deciding factor, was the looming lockout. Mm, right. So the Blues approached me and made a great offer that included lockup protection. So here oh, I am. Hu- that's huge. That here makes- I am, Tim. Uh, you know, at the time, I'm 44 years old. I have um, I have a three-year-old, seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old. And we knew at the time, everybody in hockey knew that the next year you were going to miss at least a half a year 
probably a full year and maybe two years. So if you're the main breadwinner in your family, yeah, what do you do? What do you do if, if you are offered some guaranteed money? So that was, that was sort of the tipping point. Believe me, it was really hard to leave Denver. The Avalanche were great to me. Uh, my wife and I loved it there. We're going to try and retire there some year, some, you know, years down the uh-huh. road. We love it there so much. Um, but that, that lockout looming was the biggest issue when a push came to shove. Yeah. But again, if, if Ken's not fired, if the deal with Rocky Mountain's not up and Cronky decides to start his own network and it happened in, in the spring. So they hadn't even hired executives at altitude. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't come to me and say, Hey, John, we want to get you to a new deal. Yeah. There weren't any executives right, hired. Right, yeah, Altitude, for the record, for those who didn't know, is the, is the network that Kroenke created. Exactly. Um, it's, wow. So all those factors. All those factors. Huge. You know, it's, I mean, although each one of them is huge. Each one is huge. But if you combine huge. them, I mean, it's, it, then it becomes a no-brainer. It became it? a pretty yeah. easy decision. Yeah, absolutely. Lock, in, in, in addition, the fact that I'm coming home again. Sure. So yeah, and my wife's I mean, from here. Yeah. The kids are young. We had no help in Denver. Yeah. So there, there are so many factors. Yeah. Well, that's that's perfect timing. Unfortunately, that's right. I mean, the Blues have been <laughs> on this run going back to when your dad was calling. Way before, I mean, going back to when you were probably tracking stats because yeah. that's when the playoff run started. Yeah. And then it's it's a, it's a blip on the radar, but I'm sure for Blues fans, it felt much longer than a blip. Not only do you have the work stoppage, but then they come back and it's come grow with us, you know. Uh, well, they had traded Pronger. It was they it was let Demetra go. Yeah. I think they had traded Mellonby. I'm not sure, but it was it was it was just a tough time. And mm. then what was sort of strange to me is that you know we had the lockout. We missed the full year, oh four, oh five, and then in the spring of oh five, when they come to an agreement to settle the lockout, Bill Laurie says, I'm selling the team. It's like, really? Now you have cost certainty, mm. right? I know he, I know Mr. Laurie lost a lot of money. He has a lot of money, <laughs> but he lost a lot of money. But then when you get the new CBA and you have a hard cap, you'd think that yeah, you know, he would have kept the team. Right. But for whatever reason, he sold, and then they traded um, – Pronger and did the other things, and it was a tough year. Oh five, oh six. Yeah. Uh, it was you know last overall, and it led to drafting Eric Johnson. And um, so here I was as an announcer. I came from a team that had won two cups and went to the West Finals six times, and then last overall. It's like ooh, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't much fun. This, isn't, yeah. this is like what you what you said. Your dad was dealing with uh, exactly in times in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. yeah, that's a different ball game. One of my favorite. Blues teams, even though I'm sure you would say, especially with all the great teams you've called, both Blues and Avalanche teams you've called, uh, you know, they might not have been a great team, but I loved it because they got back into something that we had taken for granted was the 09 team. Yeah. Um, because it was kind of, it came out of nowhere. It was a late season surge and uh, they got in, wound up playing the Canucks and getting swept. Um but it was an illustration that there was an appreciation now for something that we, I think, I can speak for myself anyway, had taken for granted, which was the Blues in April, they'll be in the playoffs. Right. And I think that kind of, I don't know if it set in as a complacency among the fan base, but there was an expectation for a lot of people. And I would put myself in this category, not a hardcore hockey fan, that, yeah, I'll get into it in March, and then I'll be totally locked in in April. Right. And we had expected it to be the case Whereas we saw for what four or five seasons, part of it the work stoppage and the other, they were just so bad they weren't getting in. How special it is to be part of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, and the big the biggest difference between um, 
that time and pre-04 was that you had the hard cap. So, you know, prior to 04, especially when the Lorries owned the team, they could spend so much money and they had really good teams. And, you know, going back before that, they had made the playoffs. Um, I think that their number went up to 25 years total, roughly, 24, 25. Mm-hmm. But then after the lockout, you know, you trade these players and you, you can't buy yourself a team and... It was a jolt to the fans, and it was tough. It yeah. was really hard. But that, that year, 08, 09, they were in 13th or 14th right. spot with right. two months to go and went on this miracle run led by Chris Mason. Yeah. And they clinched the second-last game of the year. I was actually, there. It was actually against Ken Hitchcock and the Blue Jackets. I was there. I was there. You, you know what's funny Place about that? went nuts. It went nuts. But you know what's interesting about that game is— there was a scenario that they could clinch, but there was also a scenario they could get knocked out that night. If they would have lost and somebody else would have mm-hmm. won. So you had that dynamic and that emotion in the building that night where you could make the playoffs or you could miss the playoffs. So it had a Game 7-esque it, final absolutely. nail feel or exuberance. Yeah. It was amazing. And that's why I loved it, even though, you know, I've, I've talked to Kachuk's been in here and we talked about it. I just I remember seeing him right when, I think, because the Canucks scored an overtime winner to end that series. Yes, they did. And he just he just skated off, yeah. you know, because I think he knew it was probably one of his last chances, and he was just so disappointed. I think not that they didn't go on and win the cup. That might have been a really, really long Las Vegas, you know, long shot, but that they didn't show better in that first round because they were playing so well, and then they yeah. just got, you know, swept I, I think, obviously, that they just they gave it all they had to get in. Mm-hmm. And they were just worn out. Yeah. And they also faced a Vancouver team that was really good. Yes. I mean, that team good. was the, of course, the, the team that almost won the cup yep. um, a few years later. So the team then begins a run that unfortunately just ended this past year, uh, starting in 2012, after the, the disappointments of 10 and 11. And, uh, you know, beating the Sharks in the first round, the first playoff series win, if I'm not mistaken, and you might be able to rattle this off the top of your head, but I'm doing it going back, I think since beating the Blackhawks in the first round of 2002. And to think that it had been that long mm-hmm. for something that we kind of had taken for granted. Yeah, they might not get out of the second round, but they'll at least win a playoff series every year or two. Right. That it had been that long, uh, get swept by the Kings in the second round. But then it's it, you're starting to feel like they're getting close, they're getting close, they're getting close. How are you as a broadcaster observing what's going on? Because that young core we had heard about now is in a position where they are the nucleus. Well, I think we all felt that this was a really good up-and-coming team. And you had the Perrons and the Berglunds and the Eric Johnsons and Oshie you know, these young players coming up and they were going to lead the Blues to a Stanley Cup and they'd be a perennial playoff team. And as it turns out, those teams became really good. Mm -hmm. And obviously they lost in the third round a couple of years ago, but now they've made some changes and uh, took, I think they took a half step back last year and, but now they've reloaded and they're, they're, they should be a really good team this year. Um, You know, unfortunately a couple of years they lost to the Kings, Tim, and I, I think that I think that the the year they lost to the Kings in the first round, they were up two zero in that series. It was uh, thirteen, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that year and the year they lost to the Hawks in six, they also had a two zero lead. Yep. Both teams were to me capable of winning the cup, but unfortunately, the Kings team found a way to to gut it out, 
And as it turns out in hindsight, they were a great team. They won two cups. And the year they lost to the Hawks, when they had a 2-0 lead, they had too many injuries. Mm-hmm. Looking back, uh, Berglund got hurt late in the year. They, they had a lot of guys that were really banged up. Um, Backus got hurt. I mean, that was the the game where uh, he wakey, got... Wakey, wakey. Wakey, game. Yeah. But if they would have gotten through that series, I think they could have gone really deep and maybe won. Yeah, there were both those Really years. close. If I'm not mistaken, both those years, there were Game 5s in St. Louis. I was at the one Game 5 because I think Taves scored in overtime. They lost both in overtime. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, just so, they're such defining fork-in-the-road moments, which is yes. why what happened in 16, and Tom Stillman was in here and I asked him his favorite game, and it was yeah. an insta-call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guess which one? Game 7, Brower against the Blackhawks. Because that's another... You're feeling like this is another fork in the road moment. Yep. And if they, you know, the Blackhawks had won six, the Blackhawks had won five, and you're thinking, oh my God, not yeah. again. Right. And then you feel like you got over the hump. Yeah. Uh, and I remember, and I was talking, to, I feel like everybody I name, I feel like they, they were in here, uh, and I'm not intending to do that, but in talking to Chase, I remember that time, April and May of 2016. You know, you get to the Western Conference Finals. They actually, we both love... Uh, poker and I was monitoring the odds in Las Vegas and the Blues were the odds on cup favorites when yep. it got to the Western and Eastern Conference Finals. Yep. I think they were after they beat Chicago. Yeah. Oh, was it even after but the first round? Yeah, I'm just, gonna doing guess. The math, just doing the math of who was yeah. out there. And talking with Chase at that time, and I think I've made the analogy before, it was like uh, Robert De Niro's character uh, Jimmy Conway in Goodfellas. He was just right after the Lufthansa's heist. He was just smiling and shaking hands with everybody. Yeah. He was just so happy. It wasn't just him. It was all the Blues alumni because they felt yeah. like this is it. There's only been one other Western Conference final appearance since he had played, you know, yeah. 01, which is his first year out. And they were so excited. And so many guys came back to St. Louis who hadn't played here maybe even since the 80s yeah. because they thought this was finally going to be it, that 2016 uh, team that made it to the finals against the Sharks. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen such passion th- than I did that spring. I mean, everywhere you you went, you saw blues flags and banners and things like that. I mean, the fans were totally on board. Um, I think looking back, what hurt that team and, and ultimately cost them a chance to go to the final was that they blew the 3-1 lead against Chicago. Yep. They should have clearly won game um, five at home. Um, it was an overtime. Kane scored in double overtime. They dominated the game. Had they, they should have won the game. So if you win that series in five, then you're a fresher team against Dallas. And they blew a 3-2 lead against Dallas. They should have won game six at home. And they were forced to win game seven in Dallas. And they they, they did. They blew them out. But now you have a team that's gone 7-7. Seven, seven, yeah. And it was too much. Yeah, and yeah. I think if they would have been a fresher team against San Jose, not to take anything away from the Sharks. I mean, it's, it sounds like sour grapes. But it would have been a better series had they not played as many games, and I, I think they would have had a much better chance to win the series. I feel like, and I'm curious what your perspective is on this, I feel like there was there was about a 12-hour period this past offseason where the fan base was going, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster of a season. And then that was like at 10 in the morning, and then by 10 at night, it was a complete 180. Were you observing this? Uh, I felt like I saw this play out. It was whatever it was a couple months ago. Yeah. And that's it's an amazing trend. People going, oh, this is going to be kind of a rebuilding year. To Holy, you know, the Blues could actually do it this year. I agree 100%. I mean, 
as people know, on that July 1st day, they signed David Perron. And, you know, David had a career year last year with Vegas and is a good player. And then nothing happened, and fans are like, okay, well, we've seen this movie before. It's third time back, and, you know, he's a, he's a good player. But he, quite honestly, just David Perron, is he going to put us over the top next year? No. And then they signed Bozak, and then they make the huge trade for O'Reilly. Right. And it's like, wow. Yeah. And when they made that O'Reilly, I was at home. It was like 7, 8 at night on that, that night. It was a Sunday night, I believe. I was like, now we're talking here. Yeah. Yep. Doug Armstrong has made a significant move. I mean, you know, it, it was a gutsy trade. You trade, you know, two players that have been pretty good for you, Berglund and Sabotka. Um first rounder, I think a second rounder, a prospect, a good prospect in Tage Thompson. But now you look at the team they have, and then um, it was a few weeks later, they got Maroon, I believe, or whatever. Yeah. Now you've done a complete overhaul of your offense, Tim. And I think Doug Armstrong gave the stat at the end of the season. From the day that Schwartz got hurt in Detroit, they, they won that game, whatever, 5-1, from that game on, and Schwartz missed six weeks or so, they were the second lowest scoring team from that date to the end of the year. Uh -oh. So they didn't score, and, you know, that was a big reason why they missed the playoffs. So, But now you've revitalized, overhauled your offense, and I think they're, they're a really strong team up front. I mean, basically, they're, they're a really strong team. And, you know, having said that here in late August, there are still a couple of X factors. Number one is Robbie Fabry. How will he be after back-to-back -back ACL surgeries? If he can come back at 80% or better, that's a big bonus for this hockey team. And the other one is the, the play of the young kids coming in, Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo. I mean, do they make the team, number one? How impactful can they be? You know, let's assume the best, that, that Fabry's good, and Thomas and Cairo make the team. You got a loaded team. Yeah. Loaded team yeah. and, and trust it. Thomas is a he's a player. This guy's a stud. He will be a dominant player for this organization. It could be this year, next year, two years. Who would you compare him to? Because you he, he's a smart he's a smart smart center iceman. Um, I, I'd have to see him more. I've only seen him a couple of yeah. games in the NHL level in preseason, and I don't see him play junior because we don't get those games. But he's a, he's just a smart two way player. I mean. Uh, I mean, Taves, maybe? I don't know. I mean, is he as gutsy as a Taves and as mm -hmm. big, a big game player like a Taves? I don't know. Um, so when you you look at, you know, the possibilities, I mean, it's pretty enticing, really. Yeah, and then that gets people going. And I feel like for as much as, understandably, St. Louis gets called a baseball town, I really think if you polled sports fans in St. Louis, not like casual fans who just, you know, understandably love to go to Bush Stadium and hang out and wear red and the whole pomp and circumstance of that experience. I think if you ask sports fans in St. Louis what they would rather see, a blue Stanley Cup or a Cardinals World Series, I really do think a blue Stanley Cup would win. And that's not to pit the two organizations who certainly have some, uh, you know, a great energy between the two of them with the synergy of the Winter Classic and so on and so forth. Uh, but, but, that there's just a passion here to see this organization get that moment. Yeah, you know, your your eyes light up when I when I say that. I'm sure you've pictured it many a time. Yeah, because your dad was calling Stanley Cup Finals. You yeah, know? exactly. And and I've been lucky enough to, to announce it. right and to be in a Stanley Cup parade and see 
you know, the jubilation and, uh, Avalanche won the first championship in Denver. The Broncos didn't win until the next year. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, God, that's amazing to think. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I agree. I mean, the Cardinals have been a great franchise. They continue to be. They've won 11 World Series, as we know. But if they were to win, that parade would be unlike any parade I think you've ever seen. And, you know, look what just happened in Washington. You know, they only came into the league a few years after the Blues. Mm-hmm. And the King just won a couple of years ago, and they came in with the Blues. So, you know, and look how long it took the Cubs to win yeah. and the Red Sox to yeah. win. So one thing that really bothers me is when people look at the Blues and say, oh, they're the Cubs of hockey or they'll never win. Well, the Cubs did win. And if you if you have that belief that you're never going to win, then that's bad. It's it's too negative. You got to, to me as a fan, you always have to believe. Yeah. I feel like the thing with saying the I think there's some – frustration in the sense that they haven't won, but the Cubs were just like a doormat for the vast majority of exactly. those years. You know, the Blues have... They've been had, so close. Right. That, <laughs> so it's, it's a different ball game, you know, right. in that capacity. I think it would be more like the Red Sox in the sense that the Red Sox had a number of opportunities, but even the Red Sox had like these bizarro world things happen, you know, yeah. Buckner, take your pick, or, you know, Aaron Boone, whatever. Yeah. Uh, the Blues have been so close, whereas the Cubs were just kind of like, yeah, they're going to be in last place or second to last place. Right. Irrelevant. The Blues have been there. I mean, the Cubs certainly did. I mean, I realize the Stanley Cup playoffs are different playoff setup than baseball, but the Blues were in the mix all the time. I, and I think it's and I think that might be why, yeah, granted, the Cubs, the lovable losers, and the 120 games at Central Time, but that's why I think if and when that moment happens, I mean, you will see like what you saw in Boston, which is people, you know, visiting grave sites mm-hmm. and putting, you know, whatever, uh, something in honor of their right. loved a, ones. A jersey or Absolutely. a miniature cup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I picture that. And it just makes me, I picture Chase and his buddies in town in 2016. Yeah. I picture Bobby the Plager. Fans. Bobby Plager. Right. Perfect. A- absolutely. You He'd want be the happen. parade marshal, right? Absolutely. <laughs> he should be. Exactly. And what he represents and his family represents, just like your family represents in the sense that the history of the organization from the very beginning. I mean, I, I just want to see that so badly. So do I. Uh, don't you? I mean, yeah. You know, and I want to see it, believe me, not for me or my family. It'd be great, but I want to see it for the fans. You know, the fans that pay their hard-earned money, Tim. And, you know, you went to the old arena, and and those fans that, you know, parked across the street at Forest Park and walked to their car after the game when it was 10 degrees, and they continue to do that today. And, you know, I know fans that, some fans that probably spent all of their disposable income on tickets. I mean, and they would give their whatever right pinky to see it. Those are the... That's why I want this team to win a cup. Yeah. I really do for the fans. John, I have enjoyed this conversation a great deal. Learned a lot too on the Did story. You? Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that you, I knew, I knew some things, but I didn't know, I certainly didn't know uh, all the details. I've enjoyed it. I'm sure a lot of Blues fans have loved hearing the passion, not just for you, but your family and, and being part of this organization for, you know, so many years. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Anytime, Tim. So there it is, Blues broadcaster John Kelly with us here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Thank you to John for his time. Thank you to Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team for sponsoring our studios and Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies for sponsoring John's guest appearance, along with James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, Seth Goldcamp and Design Air Heating and Cooling, the sponsor of all of our video clips on social media, and Johnny Landoff Chevrolet at I-270. 
and the Washington Elizabeth exit. And of course, 24-7, Londoff.com, Chevy, find new roads. Loved that conversation with John. Uh, I feel like I need to come up with something new to say because I say that over and over again, but I truly mean it. Um, and when I think about these conversations, the things that stand out to me, and, you know, anytime we talk about the Blues, and we've had, of course, John Kelly in here recently, uh, Kelly Chase, Chris Kerber, Keith Kachuk, Tom Stillman, uh, I always I always know about where the interview is going to end, and I ask about a question that, you know, I think for some Blues fans, they hesitate to even talk about it because they feel like it's almost like jinxing it, and that is what will it be like when the Blues win a Stanley Cup? And, uh, and, and you always... In each case, with each one of those people uh, who I mentioned who've, who've been in the HomeLoanExpert.com studios on the show, there's always kind of like a, a pause and a facial expression, and it's, and it's across the board. Uh, I think Kelly Chase got a little emotional on it. Um, I think John Kelly kind of did a little bit. It, it, it's, it's what it would mean to this region, and I love having that discussion. I love seeing that response, hearing the words and hearing the different perspectives on it, but it all goes back to one thing, and that is um, the fans who have been a part of it for so long or the parents and grandparents of current fans who were a part of it way back when, uh, players, faces of the franchise, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, the names Bobby Plager and Brett Hull uh, come up. I always think of Kelly Chase and his peers and what it would mean. And I love, I just love asking that question because I love hearing the answer. And uh, and it gets people fired up, especially with the Blues uh, camp just right around the corner. Gets you fired up. So enjoyed the conversation with John Kelly. Appreciate the sponsors for making it possible. And very grateful to John for coming into the HomeLoanExpert.com studios to sit around and BS with me. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. That way you get these things uh, just downloaded to your phone or wherever it is that you may podcast. You can listen on InsideSTL.com. Please leave a positive review on iTunes. It helps the business. I don't know how, but supposedly it does. So please do it. And uh, and we have three podcasts per week now. We have our interviews that we put up online every uh, Sunday night, early Monday morning. We have our questions from the audience, and you can ask any question you want. Ask something that you're like, I think this is really, really out of line, but maybe Tim will a- answer it. I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll be uh, in the mood to, to answer it. Email, email me at teamacurnan at insidestl.com. Uh, and, then, uh, and then also our pick six with the gambling picks with uh, football, which uh, is getting a really positive response in the early going. So that's up every Thursday afternoon. So three podcasts per week on the Tim McKernan Show and looking forward to continuing to bring more to you. If you've missed the recent interviews, whether it be Frank Opinion, Ozzie Smith, uh, they're all up for you and you can go back and listen and just kind of settle in and catch up on what we've been doing here over the last year. So as always, thank you to the listeners. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to John Kelly. Thank you to Iggy and Gangster Pete for producing it. I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from HomeLoanExpert.com Studios. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait. What rewards? A do operator skin. Man, I love operator skins. Dual double XP and even Call of Duty points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 and 24 packs and free 20 and 23.